and welcome to Need to Know, your weekly investment podcast brought to you by the experts at Coots. I'm Sarah Muir and I'm joined as always by Alan Higgins and making a very welcome return to Need to Know. We've got Coots US equity expert Howard Sparks. Morning, Howard. Morning. Good, good. Uh, So as always, we'll be looking at the three things investors need to know. Now, that might be for the week ahead, but we also look at longer term themes. But before we get to that, First of all, apologies if you were wondering what happened to Need to Know last week. Fortunately, we had a few technical issues with the recording, so we weren't able to bring you a uh, an episode last week. So sorry about that for those of you that are regular listeners, but hopefully we'll be not having any issues going forward. Um, but Alan, welcome back. You were on holiday last week. Did you have a good holiday, first of all? Yeah, very nice. Thank you. But, you know, always working on holiday, always reading research. Not really holiday. Did you, did you catch any fish? Or were you skiing? Uh, no, it wasn't fishing. No, it was uh, it was more um, tennis and reading. Read some 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 great investment books actually, which uh, I'll, I'll we'll have to give some recommendations. Do we haven't done that for a while? Um, so no, it was it wasn't uh, my usual pastimes of fishing and skiing. <laughs> Okay, but tennis is your your other usual pastime. Okay, true, all true. right. <laughs> okay, before we get to the the three things we need to know this week, and obviously the usual rules apply because we've got a guest. Um, Howard's going to get two topics. Alan will get the third topic. Um, a couple of things to catch up on uh, whilst you were away. Now you mentioned we're, we're we're coming back to the subject. One of your favourite ones to rant about, Alan. Um, inflation linked bonds. We had a big discussion about inflation linked bonds. Um, if, if you want to listen to that podcast, it was from the 28th of November, and that was off the back of a, an FT article that was sort of in defence of um, index linked bonds. And you've, you've been reading up some more. I believe there was something in The Economist this week, wasn't there? Yeah, actually, yeah, last week's Economist, it comes out on Friday. So, um, yeah, the FT had a go. So it's called In Defence of a Financial Instrument that Fails to Do Its Job, Inflation Linked Bonds. And I think they should have stuck with it, fails to do its job. So the main issue I have is the fact that um, from an investor standpoint in the short run, Mm. especially in the short run, uh, pension funds, fine, 30-year, 40-year horizon. But short run, by the way, means a couple of years. Inflation-linked bonds can be a disastrous investment and not what people expect. I think we referred to that last time, didn't we, Sarah? We did, yeah, because you gave an example of somebody that had a, a, a pension fund that was almost entirely an index-linked bond, and it was down, was it last year, it was down something like 34% or something? Exactly. Uh, that's the index, and that's mm. because for for inflation-linked bonds, yes, you get some inflation linking, but the, the interest rate movement is far more important in the short run. So this is someone's personal pension, but as opposed to institutional pensions that care a bit less because we're getting, you know, getting a little bit mm. technical here because they, their liabilities fall rapidly as these interest rates move, move higher. But the other area of rant is then, OK, well, let's look at it from an issuer point of view. I mean, is it good news to be an issuer? Well, not really, because when times are tough, like last year uh, on inflation, then if you have a large inflation linked market, you're paying out huge amounts of interest yeah and the uk has 25 percent of its bond market in inflation linked far too high yeah. uh, in my view and interesting to see what this economist article mentions is that canada and uh, germany have stopped okay they recognize this and and, and by the way they, they have less than 10 percent inflation linked sweden yeah. is considering stopping And I just think our weighting is far too high and leaves us vulnerable to years like 2022. 
I mean, for its for its worth, this Economist article makes the point: it's really useful to have a so-called break-even inflation rate calculated. Okay, it's kind What's of that? inflation. So, what that is, you take a ten-year nominal bond, okay, a normal bond, a ten-year mm. inflation-linked bond, mm. and then from that you can subtract the kind of expect expected inflation rate. So, mm-hmm. I'm going to do that for you now, as we speak. So in the UK, admittedly, this is using RPI, it, the current number is 3.5%. So what does okay. that mean? So over the next 10 years, in 10 years' time, Sarah, if we're both alive, you own inflation-linked bond, I own a gilt, okay? I will do better over those 10 years if inflation is less than 35 Yeah. You will do better if inflation is more than 35 over right. the whole 10 years. It's called the break-even. So you can see it's quite useful as a kind of market indicator and people even trade inflation so i get that but i i stand by my point two points one from an investor point of view a lot of investors don't understand how much damage it can do in the short run because of yeah. very high duration point two from a government point of view just when you want to help the economy you're constrained by huge interest payments because the interest payments have an yeah. inflation element. So yeah. uh, I just think the UK at 25% as an outlier is far too high. Isn't but it also the, the I, I was going to uh, say just about one last question. Isn't isn't it also the case that index linked bonds really only work when higher inflation is unexpected? If it's kind of baked in, are they less helpful, less useful? Very good point. I mean, look, from an investor point of view, they offer some diversification, so it's interesting. So use this UK example. Yeah, exactly right. So inflation comes in at 3% a year for the next 10 years. No good. You should mm. have just bought the 10-year standard gilt. You actually lost money relative. Yeah. So exactly. Only if unexpected inflation comes in. But it's the point I'm making is more subtle than that. Yes, there's that point, Sarah. Mm. But the fundamental point is that the movements in the overall bond market in the short run, and by the short run, I mean a couple of years, yeah. it's far more important. And that's why the mar- the UK market was down over 35% yeah. um, over that 2022 period because um, absolute disastrous move in bond yields. Yeah. As opposed, the inflation protection didn't help you. So mm. anyway, um, I've got to stop doing less of these rants, Sarah. You, you, you tempt me into it by saying, have you found anything interesting? I, I couldn't I resist this economist article. I always love a rant. Okay. Yeah. All right. then. So, Howard, so I, I did say hello to you at the beginning, but welcome back to Need to Know. Thanks. Now, you've got Thank two you. themes. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> <laughs> Very welcome. What are, your, what are you, your two points that you want to cover today? Well, I would say for all the attention on the US, I would say Europe is the story this earnings okay. season. Okay. So I'll get into all of that. Yeah. And then secondly... Again, if you think the US is concentrated, again, hello, Europe. That's all I can say. <laughs> okay, all right, then I'm looking forward to that. And then, Alan, what's your point, which I believe is kind of related to both of those? Yes, yeah, so it related to that because we've had, I think it's worth saying, as it stands today, uh, we're on the day of NVIDIA results. And yeah. I, I see one of the Goldman analysts says this is the biggest, forget inflation and rates anymore, this is the biggest macro mover. You know, forget Howard's <laughs> yeah. world of, of picking stocks. It's the biggest macro mover. Anyway, so we don't know NVIDIA. But going back to the Magnificent Seven that make up 30% of the S&P 500, there or thereabouts, we've had six of the results. And uh, again, you may recall that I was somewhat worried given this concentration 
yeah. in the US that we're seeing that active versus passive. I keep promising not to talk about active versus passive. I keep going back to it. <laughs> I know you can't. You, you're like a dog with a bone, Alan. Yeah, exactly. I am. But anyway, good news. Howard actually sent me a great piece of research, which I'm just going to go into. Is actually, actually, I, I, it, I, I don't need to be so discouraged. It's a great environment right now for active versus passive, despite this mm-hmm. concentration. And to be fair, Howard did tell us this when he came on several months ago. He did. I, I should have believed. I should have believed him. <laughs> but I, I can have a bit of a debate with him because I think it's a very specific type of concentration that works. But anyway, okay. that's what I'm going to talk about. I, okay. Next week, I promise I'll find something different. Okay. <laughs> All right then. Brilliant. Yeah. No. No inflation-linked bonds. No active versus passive next week. That, those are the rules. Okay. Anything else you can talk about? Actually, we we are going to hopefully be having somebody coming on from Christie soon as well to talk about art, investing in art. So that's one to watch out for or listen out for, I should say. Okay, Howard. Let's come to you. You're a U.S. equity expert. Why are we talking about Europe? What's going on here? <laughs> well, I don't know. I just think that I, I also cover Europe. Uh, for the firm so you know I do have a, do have a it's not just a hobby but I just think uh, that it's really fun, Trump a struggle to find anything remarkable in the numbers apart from the obvious obviously the magnificent yeah. seven but yeah. I think it's kind of been more of a normal earning season in in the US if you can well you know if you can understand and I, I just I've, I've actually just been staggered by just how awful European earnings have been. So I thought yeah. that that's probably more interesting, more timely to talk about that. Okay, so so what are we seeing in Europe then? Well, perhaps before we talk about that, let's just very quickly give us the big picture on the US. So what, what's the US yeah. looking like? We're just, we're, okay, as I say, we're recording this on the day that NVIDIA releases their results, which is, as Alan said, is going to be the, the big market mover. I mean, we saw that with Meta, didn't we, last week? That was, that was, a, that was a big announcement. But... Um, Big picture on US earnings, you know, it's, it's kind of business as usual. Yes. I mean, on the surface, we're on course for 5% earnings growth in, in Europe, which is pretty close to the long-term average. Let's not forget, this is hugely lopsided, right? Yes. So this is, you've got the Magnificent Seven, as we've talked about, all the big US tech firms. They're on course. This is obviously before NVIDIA. They're on course for about... Mm. 56% earnings mm. growth from this time last year, which is astonishing, really, for given the size of those those companies. And then the the unmagnificence at 493, if I can call them that, uh, are likely to see earnings fall by about 6% from, from last year. So it's it's one of those, it's a very lopsided environment. I have to say that, that this isn't going to persist that okay. we will see the 493 catch up and the, the, the seven slow if, if current earnings estimates are to be believed. Yeah. And in terms of beats, if we look at, this is one metric that we look at and looked at for a, a long time, the proportion of, of companies that are beating estimates. Yeah. Now, what, you know, what does that mean? Well, before earnings season or, you know, every every day, um, analysts are publishing estimates for for sales for earnings, and what this metric just does is on the day before or the week before earnings earnings are are released, did that earnings per share number beat the average yeah. of the analyst consensus? Right? 
So 78%. So that's pretty much in line with 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 history. Mm. However, you know, well, so anyway, that's that's the, the US picture, yeah. very lopsided, but really not too many surprises, really. Yeah, but as expected, I mean, obviously, as I say, we're recording on the day of, of NVIDIA and there'll be lots of attention on that. But OK, so then Europe, ooh, very different picture. Yeah. When we started off, I mean, I'm taking a lot of data from Bank of America. So thanks. Thanks to them. But when earnings season kind of kicked off, we were only seeing about 40 percent of European companies beat consensus now normally it's a bit lower we can okay. talk about normally the long-term average is about 55 percent but um yeah i want to come back to you and ask you about that in a minute so yeah yeah keep that thought okay. um but um yeah and it was it was running around about 40 percent. i think it's come up to about 48 percent of companies but that mm. would be the worst certainly since the pandemic Mm. And if you look at sales estimates, so European companies are reporting sales, that's even worse. That's only about 37% of, of companies are, are beating sales estimates. And that you have to go back to 2016 for, for uh, a result season that week. So, yeah, that's, that's really been the, the, the story. Tech has, in, on both sides of the Atlantic, has you know, been the star. But earnings estimates in Europe, particularly, are getting dragged down by a lot of energy and, and chemicals and industrials weightings, mm. where uh, conditions are, are clearly tough and, and actually getting worse. Because mm. actually, yeah, didn't you say well, we were chatting about this before and we were actually preparing for this? You said that isn't it isn't the case that excluding oil, actually, U.S. earnings are up? Is that right? If you take out all the oil companies. Yeah, that was me. Sorry to jump in, Howard. Yeah. That was me. I saw that stat. I thought I was excluding oil, and it may have been to be oil and commodities. Earnings are a bit better, and the because you start getting companies that I think it's fair to say, Howard, are more similar to some of the U.S. companies coming through. And that's presumably yes, that's because right. the, the the price of of Brent is still is is lower perhaps than it it has been in previous years. That's essentially what's impacting the the profits on those. Oil companies, I, I'm assuming. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I want I want to come back to this question of of, of average beats because it is very important. It's something we look at. So you were talking about. I think if I'm right in thinking, the US, the average sort of com percentage of companies that beat estimates every year is around about seventy percent. In Europe, it's fifty five percent. Why the difference? Is that well, because are America setting in the US are they setting lower expectations so they're more likely to beat? What's what's all what's that all that about? I don't know. I mean, I I think in in the US it's it's kind of always been about the number. It's always about beating EPS, and that's uh, companies are have got so many levers to pull that that they can they they can beat beat that number. I don't know whether Europe just don't really want to play that game so much. Uh, I don't know whether there's there's a kind of a uh, a European superior attitude to, to this kind of behaviour of yes we've just got to beat EPS and everything mm. else is is unimportant. I don't know uh, if anyone's got any ideas, <laughs> let mm. me know. But maybe maybe that's the answer. 
Yeah. Is it is it are we saying then perhaps in the Europe it's less about sort of pleasing analysts and more about just perhaps reporting the numbers as they are? Yeah, I I suspect so. Okay. All right then. So I mean that's the, the big picture is US is kind of business as usual. It's a bit lopsided as one would expect because of the Magnificent Seven. Europe pretty poor. Um okay, oil obviously, you know, sort of industrials and energy are, are struggling a bit. Um and we're getting below sort of historic averages as far as beats are concerned. But that brings us on to our next point, which is obviously, you know, we, we talked a lot about the Magnificent Seven in the US uh, and we've talked, you know, concerns about concentration in US markets. But how is that playing out in Europe? Because the, we're getting the same thing in Europe, aren't we? But it's even more concentrated than it is in the US. Yeah, well, if we look at the the returns of of US markets, so S&P's up about 4, 4% or so, about 60% of, of that number has, you know, you can tie back to the, the Magnificent Seven or Magnificent mm. Five or, you know, so it's it's those those big companies are, are driving that. If you look over in, in Europe, um, about 80% of the market's gains have just come from, from just four stocks in Europe. Mm. So that's Nova Nordisk. ASML, the Dutch um, te- uh, semiconductor manufacturer, mm. SAP, and um, and and LVMH. So it's 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 actually you know arguably a more concentrated market, even though you can't quite see that from the index weights. Yeah. Okay. And so, uh, but but there are some other sectors that are doing quite well, aren't they? Maybe they're not up up at the level of the of Europe's Fantastic Four. Alan, you wanted to jump in with something. Yeah, I think you're quite right, Sarah, because I'm, t- I'm taking a slightly longer term perspective, so less kind of this year's earnings. But I'm just intrigued over three years. I mean, Howard and team have done really well on luxury. So just to put this in context, this is a bit bigger picture. Uh, Europe, which includes the UK, has returned uh, basically 30 percent over the last three years. Not bad. OK. Um, LVMH, 60 percent. OK. Hermes. Okay, it was a small stock and hard to get. We've we've talked about Hermes a lot, haven't we, Sarah? 132%. We have. But then a bit surprising, European banks, which includes the UK banks, mm. 60%. So European banks have performed the same, Howard, including, the, dare I say, the underperforming UK banks as LVMH. Nothing matches Hermes, of course. Sarah and I have a soft spot mm. for Hermes. <laughs> um, but so... yeah. And that's quite different from the US, isn't it? Where US banks, probably outside of JP Morgan, are struggling, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think it's 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 a difficult one to put your your, your finger on. I think the markets are clearly very different, um, and you know, I think that the pressures on on European banks are are, are different from from the pressures uh, in 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 the US. So, yeah, I I don't know. It's it, I'm I'm quite surprised by that, by just how well European banks have done, because I, I'm certainly kind of under the impression that US uh, European banks just always screen as 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 very cheap, very attractive, but then just you know it's almost two steps forward, two steps back, or whatever the yeah. right expression is. But mm, well, you know, you always they always seem to like recover and then. 
Credit Suisse will happen or or there'll be another something which will happen and, and they'll all sell off again. Good point. I mean, Credit Suisse was including this index. Just It happens to be three years, okay? And and so, so JP Morgan over these three years, 30%, which is reasonable. But this is, this is it. Intesa, which is a very good Italian bank, 74%. And my understanding is, as you say, it's, it's very idiosyncratic, is that unlike US and UK banks, I mean, UK banks, including these index, European banks have really benefited from higher interest rates. We put it simply, they haven't had to pay it for deposits. And that's fairly unique. How long that's going to last, we don't know. Mm. Uh, but, you know, and, and we should say, Howard, isn't it? This is after years and years of underperformance. These have been really bad stocks for years, right? Uh, yeah. Continental Euro European banks, UK banks. Yeah. So going back to the sort of the, the big picture again. So US is... Yeah, business as usual, slightly lopsided because of the Magnificent Seven. Europe is really sort of very disappointing this season. What what's behind that? Is it it's not just a lack of a an equivalent Magnificent Seven? What what else is is behind those those poor earnings? Do we think? I think there's there's clearly an absence of demand in 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 Europe. I mean, mm. I, I don't know. It's difficult to kind of necessary look right across and, and find kind of common themes but i don't know i'm, I'm not i'm not the macroeconomist i just like look at look at companies <laughs> alan why, why do you think well i look I, I just think the european index is much more commodity and cyclical and value orientated than the united states but but going back to howard's point europe has some amazing companies we just mentioned some but have we mentioned the most amazing European company of all? At least in terms of um, performance. Because I was fiddling with, you can tell this is live and unscripted. I was fiddling with Bloomberg while Howard was talking and, and, mm. and pulling up. Have you mentioned Novo yet, Howard? Yes. You yeah. did. I was fiddling with Bloomberg yeah. as you were talking. So, I mean, there are some remarkable com companies in, in, in Europe. And also, so, despite you know, the, the general value cyclical um, exposure. But European Bank shows that value can work. There is more way work, more than one way of working. Yeah. Okay. All right, then. Um, well, that, so that's, that's very interesting. And we're seeing, as you say, that, that concentration in, in Europe with Nova Nordisk, ASML, SAP and LVMH. So coming on then, Alan, to your point, which is yet again, you're going to talk about passive versus active. This is this, this and index linked bonds are your two favorite subjects at the moment um and you've long been banging the drum for a return to active management and there's been some debate and i think we're going to have a little bit of a to and fro between you and howard now about whether concentration in markets is good or bad for active managers um but sort of thought thoughts on that then because you, you've been reading some research from bank of america on this subject haven't you yeah, so it's, uh, we don't just read Bank of America research, do we, Howard? But it just so happens Savita, <laughs> who's the very good U.S. equity, I think we've mentioned her before, the very good U.S. equity um, uh, research and quant strategist at at Merrill, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, has had pointed out, uh, I think Howard knew this anyway, but so bottom line is, uh, yeah, for the last six months or so, we've said, you know, it's time for for um, active to come back and i've talked about the so-called equal weighted s p 500 
And I actually just looked since end October, both the equal weighted S&P 500 and the standard S&P 500 have returned about 20%, surprisingly high, depending on the exact date that you pull up towards the end of October because it was volatile then. Just to interrupt you, Alan, just then for for those listening that don't understand the difference, just very simply, very quickly explain the difference between the equal weighted S&P and the normal S&P. So the normal S&P is that each company has its correct market weighting. And we kind of referred to that last uh, two weeks ago, didn't we, with uh, with um, James from from dealing. So mm. when someone puts money into the an S&P 500 index fund, they buy Apple and Microsoft at a circa 7% weight at exactly the right weight. But they also buy General Motors and JP Morgan at exactly the right weight. It's a completely yeah. neutral allocation. But you take a full 7% weight to the, the correct market weight of these companies. In contrast, the equal weight basically says, forget that, take the 500 stocks, we'll own them all in the same size. So Which your is- Apple exposure and your Microsoft exposure falls from circa 7 to 0.2%. Everything has 0.2%. So mm-hmm. what it means is that if the Magnificent, in general, the Magnificent 7 are soaring ahead, you don't have the full weighting. You have tiny 0.2% weights in each one. So, um, and it started to underperform this year after after uh, after doing well. But what this research shows is that actually the very specific type of Magnificent Seven res- uh, returns we're seeing this year, which is basically Microsoft, great, Nvidia, great. We'll see how it goes today, um, and and um, Facebook or Meta, great, very very strong corporate performance and stock market returns is very good for active management because Apple and Tesla are really underperforming. And for whatever reason, almost no one out there in active management is overweight Apple or Tesla, except for one fame, very famous investor who's overweight Apple, which is Warren Buffett. He's Howard, I think it's fair to say he's virtually the only one we can find, right? In terms <laughs> of active managers that are overweight Apple. I think... <laughs> I think lots of active managers, and most active managers, will own some. But yeah, you're right. He owns six percent of the company, I believe. Yeah, correct. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. so a huge way, and and it's done well. But generally, when I think it, it must, it's, it's a look. I'm not a stock analyst. It's probably a hard. People might think it's an easy company to analyze. It's not. Um, it's a hard company to analyze. Um, I, I agree. Whereas. People seem to be much more comfortable. I mean, Howard, maybe yourself included, in the Microsofts and, and Metas of this world. Yeah, I was just looking at um, the analysts and and how they're positioned and whether we're seeing a similar sort of thing. And so, hate to bombard you with numbers. Here we go. There were fifty-seven analysts I can find on Bloomberg that cover Apple. Only thirty-three of them are buy rated so only about half of them mm. have a have a have a buy rating for meta that number is well there's more analysts so there's 75 analysts and 64 uh, are are buy rated so the vast majority are buy rated but nvidia get this right so 66 analysts and 60 are buyers so you know i, I think it it does that kind of tends to support this idea that there's there's certainly much more negative sentiment around around Apple, 
um, you know, particularly if you look at the sell side analysts and, and, and their mm. ratings. But, you know, I don't know. That's not very scientific. So are we saying then that concentration in the market is not a bad thing for active management as long as you've got a couple of those real star performers actually not doing as well as the other star performers in relative terms? Is that what we're saying? You need to have a couple that are not looking quite so good. And then you can make your active decisions within those magnificent seven in this case. But there's a couple that you can leave out or you can hold. But maybe you're underweight. You're not overweight. Is yeah, that I mean, I, 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 I think so. So, you know, if you've got big market heavyweights that are not performing well and they're in a steady downward trajectory, can't clearly say this for uh, for the likes of Apple, but. That's that's a gift for active managers. I agree so with that. It, it's, uh, you know, yeah. act, uh, if you think about part of active management is is what you buy, but also it's what you don't buy. So I I agree with that. The challenge would be though, Howard, as we know, um, over the last okay, more recently Apple's started to underperform, but over the last five seven years, Warren Buffett's been right. <laughs> and, and and the rest of, it, of the industry has been wrong. <laughs> Apple has been a great stock to have. And by the way, the likes of uh, let's, I don't know, Bailey Gifford has, has been right on Tesla, right? Um, until recently. So these stocks that were relatively unpopular within active management, and I'm not talking about yourself, Howard, but just you would, but this is that we should say, Sarah, shouldn't we? Compliance. This has nothing to do with stocks that Coots might have in yeah, portfolios or may, may advise on. We're just talking generally. Um, that, you know, Apple and Tesla that people haven't owned has been a big contributor to underperformance because it's been so hard to get right. It's just it has changed. So my fear was, well, it's still a concentrated market, but it seems to be the right concentrated market because exactly as Howard said, if because Apple is underperforming. But I would counter, should Microsoft and NVIDIA and Meta start really underperforming? I do wonder about active management again. These seem to be very, very popular longs, justifiably so. They've also been fantastic stocks, but um, so I'm still, I'm still biased towards the equal weight as opposed to Howard's very difficult job of trying to pick which of the magnificent seven are going to be the great, the great stocks. Mm. Do, do we have any data? I'm, I'm putting you both on the spot here. Do we have any data for the how successful active management is or is not in Europe? Bearing in mind that we've got super concentration in Europe. I do. It's 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 the same. Remarkably, it's the same. It, it's circa over five years, eighty to ninety percent. And Sarah, set me some homework next week. I'll give the exact number. Yeah. Eighty to ninety percent of managers underperform in Europe over the last five years. It's also really tough and disappointing. Again, we expect that to change. Uh, we're, you know, we're going with uh, m more diverse performance going forward. But yeah, the numbers in 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 uh, in Europe are also a real struggle. Mm, okay, all right then. So, so in summary, then we're saying that again, this concentration in markets isn't necessarily a bad thing for active management. It depends a little bit about what's happening within that sort of concentration at the top of the market, especially if you've got maybe a couple that are relatively speaking underperforming it actually might be quite a good thing for active management because then you can make those decisions then to hold less of those underperformers and still have your exposure to those 
those top, those, those big mega caps. Thank you very much. A reminder, uh, as Alan has already mentioned, that the views expressed in this podcast are not intended to constitute investment advice, are accurate at the time of recording and are subject to change. Thank you very much, Alan and Howard. Uh, Thank you for listening and for all your comments, suggestions and feedback. As always, they're always very, very welcome. If you've got anything you'd like us to look at in more detail on on an upcoming episode, let us know. Was anything you think Alan should be ranting about other than index linked bonds let us know um we'll be back with more need to know next week until then bye for now